There's an old Jewish story from the second century that I've always enjoyed. Jews tend to tell stories to get at their most important points. It's a story about a Roman woman who approached a rabbi with a question. She approached the rabbi and she said to him, So what does God do now that God has created earth and set it in order among all the planets? What does God do now? The rabbi paused for a moment, looked her in the eye and said, God now, God matches up couples. And the woman said, that's all? I could do that. And the rabbi with a twinkle in his eye, said, maybe so. But for God, it's more difficult than splitting the Red Sea. I think it's kind of funny to imagine God struggling with relationships in the same way that we do. And I know that story gets at an ancient and ever-relevant truth. It is much, much easier to divide than it is to unify. Our first reading, the one from Genesis, is about the division of Adam and Eve, and hence the division of gender and God's matching of the first couple, Adam and Eve. It's a story, it's really, in fact, a a myth. It's a big, big, big picture. And we need myths myths like these in order to be religious. Authentic religion is, is made up of all these myths, and they're found throughout the Bible, throughout the prayer book, all throughout almost every hymn we sing. We find these myths, which are just big pictures, pictures that conceal as much as they reveal, pictures that have to be reinterpreted in each and every age, if not by each and every person. Not understanding these big pictures is actually a part of their magic, a part of the fun even, this work of interpretation and debate. And that's why Paul said once in one of his better moments, we see through a glass darkly. In the wrong hands... From the wrong perspective, Genesis 2 and this myth about the division of Adam and Eve and the creation of gender in the wrong hands is an absolute disaster. For it sometimes gets interpreted that this is the rationale, this is the origin for a hierarchy between genders. The woman created last and from Adam's rib is therefore inferior The language about being a helper is, of course, even worse. What we really don't know is the original intention behind this myth. It it may have been to create an opposite view of the actual hierarchy of gender, maybe. There's an important scholar, Hebrew scholar in the 1970s, a female, who argued compellingly, and it's been well received among other Hebrew scholars, that the intent behind Eve coming last actually could have been to argue that Eve and femininity are the crowning achievement 
of all of creation. We also know that Genesis 2 is definitely the second creation story. It's after Genesis 1. And what God creates in Genesis 1 is not Adam and Eve, but Adama. One name, Adama, that's not a proper name, but instead a noun that means many, many things, including Adama meaning humankind. In other words, that God created everybody, all people, all at once, which is a way of pointing a picture, painting a picture that has to do with equality, not inferiority or superiority. That Hebrew word for humankind also has two, if not three, other meanings. Adama means to be grounded, to be created out of the dust of the earth, even to be created out of the red ground. I come from the south where red clay is seemingly universal. It's what we walk on and gets all in our clothes and hair. It's everywhere. Do you have red clay in Colorado? Not as much. It's an incredible image that human beings are created out of two things. Remember, it's God's breath that blows into, that animates the ground to create humankind. So we are made of two things, dirt and soul. And we get way off track if we ever assume that we're only created by one or the other. Our glory, our glory, the glory of the human condition is to be made of soul and dirt. There's something deeper that perhaps needs the most amount of attention, however. The old rabbi said that what God does now is matches up couples. And the couple that God is really trying to create is a relationship between God and humanity, between God and every single person. It's what mystics and a few psychologists call the spiritual marriage. God really wants to be united with all that we are and all that we have. And I don't know any way at getting at that other than telling you a story or two. First time I went to an Episcopal church, I was 10 years old. And I went with one of my best friends. Episcopalians, where I grew up in a small town in Alabama, a town called Guntersville, Episcopalians then and now are exotic creatures. So my friend's mom, a woman named Joy, assumed rightly that I'd never been in an Episcopal church before. So she had some advice. And her first piece of advice as we were driving to the little church was this. You're going to see, these are her words, old people standing and kneeling. I looked perplexed. She said, you're going to see older people literally getting on their knees and she said, when they do that, you, you and Dan can just sit there. Don't, don't worry about all the moving up and down. That was really good advice. Because it allowed me to sit there 
while those older people knelt. And let me tell you, when you're 10, looking at an adult's kneeling, you look odd. You look serious and silly to a 10-year-old, and I enjoyed that. I enjoy it less now that I'm in my 40s. The other thing that I'll never, ever forget, I really don't think I will, this was a tiny Carpenter Gothic church. It couldn't seat four dozen people, smaller than our chancel. And the back door opened to the grounds, or if you're coming inside, opened immediately into where everyone was seated, into the nave. And what that meant is when that door opened, the entire place was just flooded with light. It changed the whole interior the moment someone entered that door. It was as if a person and God as light entered the room at the exact same time. It was very mysterious. It also meant that you couldn't get there late without being noticed. <laughs> Ten years later, I was 20 at a very different place in my life. In college, I'd been wandering a bit in every way you might imagine. And my then-girlfriend, now wife, was a cradle Episcopalian. She said, you know, you should try an Episcopal church. There happened to be one across the street from where I lived on campus, a college chapel with a college chaplain. They only had services at night. And I went in to a communion service for the second time in my life. The ritual in the space was so mysterious and yet gentle. The people were diverse and really quirky and funny, and at least they appeared to be intelligent. And I received Holy Communion for the first time in my life. And it felt like the most intimate thing I'd ever done in church before, ever. It still does. Taking that sacrament, taking that cup and and putting it with, consuming it. And bringing all that I was to that altar and to that moment. God invites all of us to the table. And not just all of us, but but all of who we are is invited to this meal. All that we are, soul and dirt, past and future, where we've been, where we're headed, and of course we have no idea where we're headed, but all of Time, all that makes us who we are, male and female and whatever else is within there, all of it's invited to this meal. You might think about communion or the Eucharist being God's standing date with us. Every week, the table is there, and God is the one who invites, who charms, and cherishes us in ways we can't even imagine. May we never, ever forget how much all that we are is loved 
and loved unconditionally. And in those moments that we do forget, let's come back to this altar, back to this table, so that we may remember.